Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. When I'm finished, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and please respond. Thanks be to God. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, With these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. morning. Everybody have a good time yesterday? That was a lot of fun. uh, I'm Mario, by the way, if you (laughs) haven't met. Um, If you weren't there yesterday, I was dressed as Mario. Um, So my plan uh, when I graduated from the University of Georgia was to go to work with my dad building houses, and um, and I did that. This uh, back in the early two thousands, the the building business was booming in Georgia, uh, and so I went to work building houses. And uh, the way that that worked was that I wasn't my dad and I, both of us, we weren't paid uh, a salary, but we we were paid based on uh, when a house sold and and how much profit we made um, on each house. And um, in the beginning, that was, that was great. Um, we, we built houses and pretty easily were able to sell any house that we built um, until uh, the 2008 recession hit. And then suddenly, houses weren't selling. Uh, we would, you know, build a house and we had a good bit of in- inventory, and then all of a sudden it just kind of hit all at once. And, uh, you know, however many houses you have, 
sitting, you've got to pay construction loans on those houses. And, um, and suddenly things weren't so good for us in, in the business. Um, our business account was, was draining right before our eyes. Our, our own bank accounts were draining right before our eyes because it had been months and months and months since we'd been paid. Uh, and every conversation that we had with people uh, during that time was just a conversation filled with fear, whether we were talking to uh, real estate agents or um, to mortgage loan officers or to other builders or contractors, everybody that we talked to. It was, this was a, just a, it was a scary time for people. And um, I remember, I, I will never forget a conversation that I had with my dad that was, that ended up being a watershed moment for us. Um, I, the Lord, I felt like, gave me some, some revelation, and I said to my dad, I said, if our peace is contingent upon a number in an, in an account, then what does that mean that we're trusting? Right? And, um, and, it, and it, it was just a moment for us where the Lord revealed some serious truth to us, and, um, and it changed our perspective from that point on. Um, we, we did have to go out of business, ultimately, but, but we did so with a peace, and it was the Lord's plan. That, that was an important step in God calling me into the ministry when I look back on my story, my life. Um, today's passage in 1 Timothy, we're going to be learning about godly attitudes toward work and toward money. That's, that's the topic. Um, and this, this has an enormous um, practical application for all of us. Uh, even if you are already retired or you're not working yet, um, we have to deal with money every day. Um, and, uh, and our attitude toward that can mean the difference in being able to have a relationship with God and not. So this is massively important for every one of us. So let's, let's pray Ask the Holy Spirit to teach us from this and let His Word speak to us all. Um, Father in heaven, God, we thank you so much for this, this church and this morning that we have together, this opportunity that, that you've given us to open up your Word, to study it together, uh, to learn from it. Lord, I ask that you would break bondage off of, off of our hearts, Lord. Um, break chains off of our hearts where we have trusted money um, and been in love with money and, or desired to be rich. Um, God, there's so much in our culture that is discipling us in the wrong way. So would you, would you do your work, Holy Spirit, now to correct our thinking and to set us free with the truth. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I have um, broken this passage into three sections. Basically, we, we have the first couple of verses that deal with bondservants and masters. Um, then we have the next section, which deals with kind of false teachers, false teaching. And then we have the final section, which deals with contentment versus um, a, a, a love of money. And so we'll deal with them in those three sections. Um, the first 
My first point and the first section uh, is, my first point is honor the position. And I'll explain what I mean here. Honor the position. So verses 1 and 2 talk about an attitude uh, of, that, that bondservants are to have towards their, both their unbelieving and believing masters. So let me set some context for you here. Um, at this time that this is written in, in the Roman Empire, there are some 60 million bondservants. Uh, the word there in the Greek is doulos, and your translation may, may have slave or, uh, or indentured servants. But this was the workforce of the economic system that was in place in Rome at the time. Um, <clears throat> when we hear the word uh, bondservant or slave, naturally, we immediately, our mind conjures up images of uh, slavery in America, and that evil, that evil system that was in place here. And so we may shrink back from this passage and be like, what in the world, right? Um, but, but this, I want to explain to you that this, this is a different kind of system that was in place. And so we need to really be able to divorce that image that we have of early American slavery from what was in place in the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, what what this system uh, it, that was in place in the first century was, um, it, it actually worked well in the ancient world. And, and it wasn't based on race or social status. Um, a, a bondservant had rights, uh, certain rights, certain privileges, and, and they were paid for their work. Um, and so if a person got into tough uh, economic times, they, could, they would often sell themselves uh, or, or a better way of, of actually thinking about this is they would contract themselves for a set number of years. Um, and during that time, they would work for a family for a set price. They would be given food and housing and being taken care of. And then when that contract was up, they would go free. Um, and if they wanted to, um, they could actually remain there in that home. Um, permanently if they so decided, but they were free to go when their contract was up. So there's actually a lot of parallel between that system um, in that day and contract work today, right? Um, in contract work today um, or uh, the military today, right? You, you sign a contract and, and, you, um, and you work for that person or, or that, those people for a set price, for a set amount of time, um, and, and it was a very similar system in that day. Um, so the verses here in verses 1 and 2, they actually they have a lot to teach us today about the employer-employee relationship. And that's what we're going to look at. That's, that's what we, the point of these verses for us today that, that we're going to take away is um, that God wants employees to honor their bosses, um, and that that is what brings God glory in the workplace. And the big um, overarching principle here is that to honor human authority is to honor God. So, so for our application, if you are an employee, the Lord would have you honor your boss, and that is regardless of whether or not they are believers. Um, 
if you want to glorify God in your workplace, then God would have you honor your boss. In fact, he would have you regard your boss as worthy of all honor. It's really important that we look at how this is worded. Um, Paul doesn't say, if your boss is honorable, right, then then treat them as an honorable person. (laughs) That's not what it says. He says, regard your masters as worthy of all honor. See that? Um, So, we need to recognize that according to God, honor can and should be given simply based on the position that someone holds. That is really foreign to our culture, I understand. But it is biblical that God wants uh, those who are under authority to honor those who are in authority. And this begins, I won't go into this long as I've already done it, but this begins in the home with children being taught honor toward their parents. That's the first authority relationship we're to um, we're to to learn how to do this in. So, um, every employee must learn to honor their boss because it honors God. Romans 13, 1 and 2, and then verse 7, read together. It says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So the the principle here is very simple, um, and it is that we are to honor the position um, regardless of the person's character in it. So what that looks like for us uh, outside of just, just employee-employer relationships is we should honor uh, those, we should honor the president. Even if we don't agree with, even if our president has evil policies in place. I mean, th- this was written about a government in a time when a government had incredibly wicked policies in place. But it's honoring to God to honor human authorities. So whether or not you voted for the current president or the, the people who are in authority over you, there is a level of honor that is expected of God's people and that honors the Lord. <clears throat> so that's the first section here. Second section um, is looking at false teachers and their teaching, verses 3 and 4. Uh, sorry, 3 through 5. And my second point is that God is not a means to an end. God is not a means to an end. Um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because I, well, because this book has already hit on some very similar things twice, chapter 4 and chapter 1, that we've preached on. So let me just kind of summarize this section so that we can spend a good bit of time in the last section. Um, basically, to summarize, Paul is saying that that godly teaching or that, that sound teaching, healthy teaching, healthy doctrine leads to godly 
behavior. It produces a change in your life, righteousness in your life. Um, And so teaching that doesn't produce that isn't sound doctrine. It isn't healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine produces healthy lives. And, and, And a good principle for you to remember is that every issue in your life is a theology issue. Everything that happens in our lives that, it, that, that results in unhealth is actually, if you trace it back, it's connected to an unhealthy belief that you have. And, and where we believe rightly, our lives will be lived rightly in, uh, in harmony with the kingdom of God. And so, um, so uh, false teaching does not result in godly lives. It, it, in, it instead produces uh, all kinds of unhealth, controversy, quarrels about words, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people, and so on and so forth. And then he goes, he says in verse 5, that these false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And he's, he's speaking here especially and particularly of, of material gain. Listen, any teaching that you hear out there that says that you should follow Jesus so that you can increase your wealth or your status in this world is a lie from the pit of hell. It is a false gospel. It's not kind of off, a little bit off. It is a false gospel. Turn it off, turn it off, and get away from it. Run in the other direction from the prosperity gospel that says, this is what that is is saying. It's saying that God is a means to something else. And so what that means is that God is not your God. But the thing that you ultimately want The thing that you're really trying to get and you're using God to get there, usually money, is that's really your God. And God is just your genie in a bottle, right? And not your God. Jesus never said, follow me and I will make you wealthy. Um, He says, follow me and you'll be hated by the world. Count the cost before you come and follow me. If you follow me, you probably won't have a place to lay your head. He says, you'll have to leave everything behind to come follow me. So, um, with these false teachers, they, they were using uh, biblical teaching. They were using their, their position in the church to get somewhere else, to get something else. They were using God to get money. That's the second section. The third section is where I want to spend the rest of our time. I want to hang out here. Um, My third point is this, that we need to replace covetousness with contentment. So verses 6 through 10, let me just read them again so that we can let these sink in. There's some really powerful stuff here. He says, but, with, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
So godliness is not a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take nothing, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I mean, Paul could not use stronger language here in these warnings. And so I, I just want us to, uh, to take the rest of our time here to soak in to what he is saying, what the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying to us. Um, first of all, we need to understand what, what is contentment really and what, what is the opposite of contentment, which is covetousness, what, what is that really? Um, contentment, this is my definition, is, is the pleasurable state of being without want. A contented soul is a satisfied soul. It's a soul at rest. Um, and, I, and the picture that comes to mind for me when I think of contentment is a, a newborn uh, that's just been fed and is asleep in its mother's arms. That's contentment. We know what it looks like. And the Bible often talks about that the kingdom of God is characterized by, by joy and peace. And I think when you put those two things together, what you have is contentment. That's contentment. It's, it's not dependent upon circumstances. Contentment was the perpetual state of being before the fall. It's the only thing that humans knew before sin entered into the picture. So Adam and Eve, in the presence of God, walking with God in the cool of the day, in the garden, they experienced this state always, contentment. Joy and peace. Their souls were satisfied because their souls were in fellowship with their Creator. That is until the father of lies whispered the first lie into the ears of man. And that is that God was withholding something from them. That there was something they needed in order to be really happy. Right? That was the lie. And, and that, that brought the sin of covetousness into the garden. The definition of covetousness is covetousness is the controlling belief that something over and above what God has given you is needed to be truly happy. That's my definition. John Piper's definition I like. He says, it's desiring something so much that you lose contentment in God. Um, so it's the controlling belief 
that something over and above what God has given you is needed for you to be happy. Notice I said belief. Because um, it's, it, is, it is actually a false belief. Or to say it another way, it's, it's actually unbelief. Covetousness is unbelief. It, it is thinking that God isn't enough when he is. When he is. It's the failure to believe that what your soul really longs for underneath whatever longing you're experiencing is God himself. So here's what is true. Here's what we have to fight to believe. Here's what's true. God is enough, and he will provide for our needs. We have much to be thankful for, even if we have very, very little, because God's greatest gifts are not possessions, right? I mean, anybody who's, who's ever been awake to God and stood in warm sunlight and looked at spring flowers or smelled a clean baby knows that the best gifts in life are free. And in fact, His greatest gifts to us happen, I think, in relationships. I think His greatest gifts to us are people and, 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 and laughter. And His greatest gift ultimately is Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that here in just a few minutes. But if you have Christ, if you've had your sins forgiven and and your slate wiped clean, and you stand before God, sinless in His eyes, blameless in His eyes, forgiven for all of your rebellion, you have the greatest gift known to man. So God, Godliness with contentment is great gain. But we know this. Like, no, I mean, most of you in the room, you don't have a hard time saying an amen to that, right? As I was preparing for this message, I, I didn't have a hard time saying amen to this. But here's the thing that we've got to be realistic about. We are constantly, we are constantly being fed a, a system of lies that that gets, gets into our hearts. And we've got to watch out because like, we can believe this today and tomorrow see a commercial or hear a conversation in our workplace or, or have a, a vehicle drive by us that completely makes us forget what we just said amen to today. Right? Um, let, let's, let's, just, let's just remind ourselves today of what's really true. Who's happier in this life? Who's happier? The successful business person that's making seven figures, spending every waking moment thinking about the bottom line, working 70 plus hours a week, coming home in their luxury car, sitting at the dinner table while watching CNBC and, and, and worrying about tomorrow and answering emails on their phone and then going to bed with an expensive scotch in their hand so that they can sleep, so they can wake up tomorrow and do it all over again. Or, or the diesel mechanic 
who puts in a hard eight hours, leaves it behind him, drives home in his 10-year-old truck, sits at the table with his wife and kids, prays together, talks about their day, reads together before tucking them in at night, doesn't have enough to save for the future, but he trusts his God. Which is happier, really? We, we know the answer to that, and it, e- even the world knows the answer to that. Do you know how many movies have been made to illustrate this, <laughs> right, about the extremely successful business person who's miserable? They have everything they, they could ever want in life, and they're miserable. Isn't it so funny that our world knows this is true and sells us the lie that this is what we really need? We know what's true. We, we, know, we know that that is not what will satisfy, and yet we get pulled into it. What we really want, what we really crave is contentment, and there is only one way to find it, and that is by finding our soul's satisfaction in God. That's it. So let me, let me now just show you five quick takeaways from these, these last verses uh, to help us to remember, to put our feet on some solid ground so that we can remind ourselves of these things this week and in the weeks ahead. If you ever remember this message again beyond Wednesday, uh, I want us just to have a few handles, Okay. And here's what we can see in this passage. Number one, covetousness never satisfies. Never satisfies. He says in verse 8 there, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. It is enough to have your needs met, your, your needs met. That is enough. The path of covetousness never leads to contentment, even though that is exactly what it tells you. It, it, covetousness comes in and whispers this lie. If you had just this one more thing, then you'd be happy. If you just had one more raise, a, a little bit more in the bank, if you had a little bit more saved up, then you'd be happy. Then you could rest. Then you could relax. But that never ends up satisfying us. It always leads to another object or pursuit. Proverbs 27.20 says, The eyes of man are never satisfied. It's never enough. Covetousness is like drinking seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Why, Why does covetousness work like that? Do you know... You know this if you think about your own experience, that all sin has a measure of temporary pleasure in it. Otherwise, it'd be easy to not sin, right? But we all give in to sin because with all sin, there is a measure of temporary pleasure in it. And, and the same is true for covetousness. Well, the, the temporary pleasure in covetousness is in desiring what you don't have. And so here's the issue. You desire the thing you don't have, and then if you get it, 
covetousness has already moved on to the next pursuit. You cannot satisfy it. You cannot. Never satisfied are the eyes of man. John D. Rockefeller, who was at, the time, at, at this time the richest man on the planet, was asked by a reporter, how much is enough? And his reply is telling of the human heart. He said, a little bit more. A little bit more. That desire for a little bit more will lead us into destruction, into a life of misery, So, covetousness never satisfies. Um, Here's the application for us. Contentment is what your soul really longs for. You do not need more than God and what God has given you. Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low And how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is the context of that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context is I can be content in any and every circumstance. All right, second takeaway um, from this little passage is that covetousness is never wise. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Someone once said, you'll never see a hearse pulling a (laughs) U-Haul. You know, it doesn't matter how much money you make in this life. We are all going to enter into the next life with exactly the same amount of money in our hands. None. None. Absolutely none. You're not going to take any of it with you. None of your possessions, none of your 401k, no vehicles, no clothes. You're going into the next life like you came into this one, naked, with nothing. And it's good that we remember that. The the pursuit of, of wealth in this life is simply unwise. If that is what we're living for, it is a very short-sighted pursuit. Because whatever you store up will be lost eventually. Jesus talked about this, right? He said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I mean, he, he's appealing to our desire to live wisely, right? He's saying that's not a very good investment. He says, don't, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Contentment with what you have frees you up. It, it pries your fingers off of your stuff and frees you up to invest your money wisely in the kingdom of God, in eternal things. And so, covetousness is never wise. Contentment is always wise. 
and it leads to wise investment. Thirdly, covetousness is an open door to many evils. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This covetousness, this controlling desire for what God has not given, it has led to many sins that people never thought they would ever commit. Right? It, it, every, every kind of conceivable sin has started with the sin of greed and discontentment. Fraud, theft, tax evasion, murder, and on and on and on we could go. If you do not, here's the application for, for us. If you do not think that the love of money is a dangerous sin, remember Judas. If you don't think that, if you think everybody, I mean, this is America, like everybody loves money or what money can get, get them, remember Judas. Judas sold his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. The love of money is deadly serious and contentment is a safeguard from the incredible evils that greed will lead you into. Point, takeaway number four, covetousness will destroy your soul eternally. This is the most important one. Um, You've got to hear this. Look Look at verse nine. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Notice he doesn't say those who get rich. He says those who want it. Just wanting to be rich is a trap. The mere desire to be rich is a trap that plunges people into destruction. The word that Paul uses for destruction here is is talking about the destruction of your body and soul eternally in hell. It's that serious. It's that serious. Paul, I mean, uh, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot love God and money. You cannot live for God and live for money. You cannot be devoted to God and devoted to the accumulation of money. This is just Jesus' words. It's that simple. And so the the mere desire to be rich is a trap. Run from it. Run from it. That desire is, we should see that desire, that craving for wealth as, as dangerous as the most despicable, wicked sin you can imagine. It will destroy your soul forever. 
Think of Judas. And then finally, and this is our last takeaway that I hope um, sticks with you. Contentment is only found in friendship with Jesus. It's the only place that you will ever find true and lasting contentment, peace and joy together, no matter your circumstances. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For, for here, here's why you can do that. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That, that's it. That's what you need. This is what the Bible is saying. Here's what you need to be content, to have joy and peace, no matter what your circumstances are in this life. Remember that you've got God. And here is the truth that we need to hear. You have exactly as much of God as you want. He is equally available to all of us. He is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. And so you have exactly as much of God. I have exactly as much of God as I really want, as I've really gone after. I know him as well as I have put the time into knowing him. You and I, we can be satisfied with him with an experiential, interactive love relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's two things that I want to give you to, to walk away with. One, first, you've got to become a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then you must become one. And what I mean is, if you've never turned away from your sins, from doing life your own way, from pursuing life your own way, from ch- making your own choices and, and ignoring God in the matter. If you've never turned away from that in repentance and turned to Jesus and put your faith and trust in Jesus and believed that he died on the cross for you to take your place, to pay for your sins, that he took your punishment and mine on the cross when he died, that he was buried and on the third day he rose from the grave, that he will never die again, that he is alive and well today and on the throne. If you've never turned from your sins and turned to him and believed in him and trusted him, you've got to do that first. Do it today. Become a Christian today. And then secondly, build the friendship. Build the friendship. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you you should read the Bible. Um, and if you don't have one, we have Bibles here for you uh, in the foyer. We'd love to give one to you before you go home. You need a Bible to read, and we'll, we'll give you some help in knowing where to start. But if you're, if you're not new to this and you're not reading your Bible, listen, you've got to read your Bible. Jesus is made, he, God has revealed himself to us in the word of God. You need it. This is food for your soul. Don't try and go about your day without eating. I mean, you're going to get weak. You're going to get malnourished. And don't try and go about your day without eating food for your soul. Read your Bibles. Get to know Jesus. Build a relationship by spending time getting to know Him and pray. Talk to Him. So so start that habit now. Begin to build that relationship and and commit to the church because in the church, 
in these weekly gatherings, in the worship that we, that we do together, in the hearing of sermons, serving together, in taking communion. Listen, this is, this is part of the design. We need this. Commit to this every week. Every week you need it. There's not a week that goes by you don't need it. Build a friendship with Jesus. The reality is, you and I were made for Him. And until we find our soul's satisfaction in Him, we will constantly, constantly be looking for other things to satisfy us. And He never will. So turn to Jesus, become a Christian, and build the relationship with Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You so much for this word today from your from your word god um i do pray for every person here if there's someone here that today they need to turn from their sins and believe in you god i pray that you would grant to them the gift of faith right now that they would um that they would count the cost that they would look at all the things that they're living for and recognize how empty they are, that they would look to you and see all that, all that you are for us, God, and that ultimately what we've all been looking for and longing for our whole lives is you and closeness with you, intimacy with you. And I pray for every person in the room that does know you. God, I pray that we would press in that we would recognize that there's more. There is more. You are an infinite God, and we will spend eternity getting to know you and being satisfied by you. I pray that we would begin that now. Lord, I pray that we would lay down our idol of money. God, that you would break those chains off of our hearts that we wouldn't fear when a number in an account gets low or, or when the news talks about a recession or, or when the market dips. Lord, I pray that our peace, our contentment would not be based upon the circumstances of our lives, but that we would be a people who truly are immovable because we found our contentment, our joy, our peace in an immovable God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.